TED Audio Collective. It's TED Talks Daily, and I'm your host, Elise Hugh. If there's one thing the COVID-19 crisis has made clear, it's how interconnected we are as humans on this planet. Climate change poses a similar collective problem for the globe, and Nigel Topping knows this all too well. He's the UK high-level climate action champion, and at TED 2020, he sat down with TED's global curator, Bruno Giussani, to make sense of the systemic changes afoot, the hope he has for the next generation, and how we can individually contribute to solving the climate crisis. Support comes from Zuckerman Spader. Through nearly five decades of taking on high-stakes legal matters, Zuckerman Spader is recognized nationally as a premier litigation and investigations firm. Their lawyers routinely represent individuals, organizations, and law firms in business disputes, government, and internal investigations, and at trial, when the lawyer you choose matters most. Online at Zuckerman.com. Support for TED Talks Daily comes from Capital One Bank. With no fees or minimums, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than deciding to listen to another episode of your favorite podcast. And with no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. TED Talks Daily is brought to you by Progressive. Progressive helps you compare direct auto rates from a variety of companies so you can find a great one, even if it's not with them. Quote today at Progressive.com to find a rate that works with your budget. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Our next guest is uh, Nigel Topping. Uh, His official title is UK High-Level Climate Action Champion for the United Nations Climate Conference, the COP26, which was planned to take place uh, in November 2020 in Glasgow, uh, UK, and it has been postponed to 2021. Now, 2020 was to be the year of climate, uh, in a way, of climate action, uh, really. Five years after the Paris Agreement, when no, the moment when the world would come together and take stock of uh, whether there, there, is, there has been progress or, or not, and what kind of progress, uh, and maybe even uh, up the level of ambition towards uh, uh, you know, reaching the targets set towards 2030 and uh, 2050. And then the COVID-19 pandemic arrived and uh, shook that, that uh, momentum. But in the minds of some, the health crisis and the economic crisis are reasons for pushing the pause button on climate. Others instead seem to think that the pandemic has actually shown the fragility of the basis of our uh, economic system and uh, of our society. And that's what we're going to talk about, uh, about climate change and system change uh, with our guest, Nigel Topping. Welcome to TED uh, 2020. Hi, Bruno. Nice to join you. I feel that we need to start from uh, COP. So tell us briefly what it is and especially why the Glasgow COP26 uh, is so important. First of all, I should explain what COP stands for, right? Because it's, it's not obvious. It stands for the Conference of the Parties, which means it's the, the conference of all of the parties to the UN Climate Convention. And, and as we all know, Paris was the real breakthrough when everybody agreed on the long-term goal and the mechanism. The reason that Glasgow is so important is that it's really the first test of the Paris Agreement. Like, will the Paris Agreement work? Is it working? Because what the Paris Agreement did was it gave up on the idea that nearly 200 countries can agree everybody's targets 
you imagine the number of combinations that's just it's kind of ridiculously complex but instead empowered every country to set their most ambitious targets but realize that you won't get enough ambition first time around so the second thing that paris did was said and every five years we'll review everybody's targets and everybody will come back with a new plan so this is what's happening right now have we as a international community been able to ratchet our ambition that's what we'll find out in glasgow your job High-level climate action champion. That's not exactly a mainstream job title. So what, what's your role in there? <laughs> so in the other thing that was special about Paris was that for the first time in the international process, there'd been a recognition that not just national governments, but businesses, investors, um, cities, um, states and regions. Remember, California is the fifth biggest economy in the world. Um, and cities like New York and London have much bigger economies and populations than many smaller countries. So, that, so all these big real economy actors have a real role in the politics. But they were invited in, not into the legal process, but into the informal process to lend their voices. So this role of the high level climate action champion was created to work with those communities of businesses, investors, cities, states and regions to keep driving ambition alongside the national process. So there's a kind of a feedback loop between the two. But in terms of the legal aspects of the discussions, those are still national. Uh, it's the political aspect that is more all-encompassing. The legal agreements are entirely between national governments. So my job is to work with what are sometimes called non-state actors or non-party stakeholders in the UN system. But that, that puts you in a, in a position where you have one foot close to government and another one close to the many people working on asking for action on climate or pushing back on action on climate? How, how do you create productive, meaningful dialogue? So I think first of all, it's being realistic and meeting people where they are. And then I think I spend a lot of my time acting as a kind of bridge between different worlds, particularly paying attention to early signals of change because both incumbent businesses and incumbent politicians are very wary of moving too soon to change. So they tend to look at what the majority are thinking all the time, which means they're kind of cognitively blinded to early signals of change. So I spend a lot of my time searching for and pointing to early evidence of the kind of change which we know is inevitable. You know, when people from the outside look at, at uh, the multilateral effort around climate, they may have the impression that it's something a bit uh, dysfunctional. We think of, you know, the COP25 in Madrid last November, where in any case, if we followed it through the media, it looked like uh, at least a partial disappointment. But when you offered this job, you, you took it. So I guess you have a different opinion on that. I mean, it's a real challenge, right? We are talking about the complete re-engineering of the global social and economic system. But I do think that... Um, we get more excited and pay more attention to negatives. And I think that's the story of Madrid. You know, in Madrid, just a year after the IPCC, that's the International Panel on Climate Change, the, the panel of scientists um, published their report on the difference between a 1.5 degree warming and two degree warming, which basically said that it's a massive difference. And for every fraction of a degree, we have significant human and economic damage. So let's it really reset all of our thinking to we've got to go for 1.5 degrees, which means getting to zero by 2050. In the one year between that being reported and Madrid, suddenly we had hundreds of businesses and cities and states and regions and lots of countries saying, okay, we're going to, so we had a massive ratchet in ambition. During the Madrid conference, the continent of Europe, the entire trading bloc, one of the biggest trading economies in the world, committed to net zero by 2050. And yet, the media coverage was dominated by protests on the street, which, which are real and which reflect real 
discomfort, unease, anger, right on the street, and the failure to negotiate some small bits of the Paris rule book, because that's mostly what's being left to negotiate. They're important politically because that reflects our ability to agree, but they're not as material as the entire European economy to kick out to net zero. So I think there's always, it is a very complicated process, right? It does require collective action. That's difficult to achieve. So before the pandemic, there was a growing momentum around climate, from politics to business to citizen, youth activists in the streets and, and so on. Many people are basically saying, let's postpone talking about climate. Let's, you know, roll back regulations. We need to restart the economy. So how do we restart the economy without forgetting the, the urgency of, of the climate crisis? I mean, you know, there is a sort of truth to the sense that one must concentrate on the most immediate problem first, right? So I think it, it is true and, and understandable that ministers and leaders have focused more on the immediate health crisis and less on the long-term climate crisis because... Nobody wants to be told that their, their long-term health is being secured whilst their short-term health is, while people are literally dying. And we, we understand the science of the risk of climate change very, very well. And it doesn't get better, right? We already have locked in a lot more temperature, right? So we have locked in more floods, more droughts, more wildfires, um, more typhoons. But we also know economically that the solution to climate change is a driver of economic growth and a driver of jobs. So, so it would be real folly now to ignore the science of risk and to take stupid economic decisions to invest in the jobs that are dying anyway, instead of accelerating the transition to the jobs which will last, which will build wealth and which will deliver a cleaner and healthier um, world for us all to live in. I'm curious, when was the first time that you yourself realized that climate change was real? I mean, viscerally, in 1987, in, in, in Greenland. I was, in a, I was a, a 21-year-old mountaineer and on an expedition, and we were doing some scientific research on the snout, the, the end of a glacier, so where the glacier carves into the sea. It's in the, on the east coast of Greenland, Sermalik Fjord. It's a very big glacier. It's one of the main ones draining the east coast ice sheet. Um, and we got to where we were supposed to be doing the science, which is where on the map the end of the glacier was. And all we could see was like two kilometers of open water with bits of ice floating out to sea. And it took us a while to realize that we were in exactly the right place, but the glacier had just moved back 20 kilometers. So it was, re it's, it was really shocking. Um, and that, that's really stuck with me. I'm, there's never been any doubt in my mind that climate change is real because I've, once you've seen something physically up front like that, yeah, I asked you the question because I, I, I guess that many of us know and acknowledge that climate, the climate crisis is real and, and that we need to change. But we're also you know, embedded in really complex, big systems, the ones that run our life, the, the economy. And thinking about changing system is really sometimes it's hard and sometimes can be overwhelming. So in the past, we've worked on large scale manufacturing systems you know, optimizing factories, optimizing supply chains and so and uh, I know that in your current role, you've actually set up your teams to work on systemic change. So how do we think about changing complex, big, overwhelming systems? Yeah, I mean, it is hard because it can be overwhelming, right? Most of our life, we break things down into small chunks and work on one part of a system. And that's how we can get, that's how we get stuff done, right? But when we're confronted with the need to transform systems, I think the first thing is to have a sense of the whole, so to have a sort of map of the whole. So. So we take something like the, the system that produces cars, which leads to a, a lot of pollution um, 
in cities and a lot of CO2 through as we drive cars and burn gasoline. And look at all the different levers that are influencing that system. So it's not just the, the technology and the policy, though those are important, but also how are investors thinking about that? How is the next generation thinking about that? How are um, cities thinking about that? And then we look, particularly look for, for early signals of change. So, you know, the kind of the evidence that cities are starting to create or that some companies who exist by leasing cars are starting to commit to go 100% lease plans. So, so being aware of things that, that as they pop up and, and scanning and then looking at the way they interact with each other. So for example, young people becoming more and more aware of climate change starts to really affect the employment contract. So you find the smartest engineers now don't want to work for companies that haven't got their house in order on climate change because they want to be solving problems, not contributing to them. So you're looking for those kind of feedback loops that shift the whole system over time. So what you're saying also is that the future is not something that's dead and we walk into it, right? The, the, the signposts of the future kind of keep shifting because every time one of those decisions that you mentioned from cities, from companies, etc., is taken, then it, it gives permission to others to be more ambitious or to change their practices or, or so. Yeah, and, and this sort of dynamic way of thinking about the future is really important because mostly we think very linearly and incrementally. And so we're always surprised at how fast things, even when we know we're always surprised, we're still surprised. So the way I describe it, I, li I live on a street with 10 houses. The way that most thinkers about the future try to predict how many people on my street will have an electric vehicle in 2030 is they look for public commitments um, to buy an electric vehicle. And they find out that Nigel and Tracy down the street, so they say two people out of 10 have committed, so it will be 20%. They completely ignore the fact that the cost is coming down, that when Nigel buys his Tesla, um, people are going to look at it and say, oh, can I have a drive? And then that's going to encourage them to buy it. So actually, by the time we get to 2030, eight or nine out of 10 are going to have bought. I always think also that the way that we think about the future really really matters. And I just read the history of the moon landing. And, you know, when JFK said that we we're going to land on the moon, lots of people said it's not possible. In particular, some of the best mathematicians in MIT said, but we don't even have the mathematics to calculate the orbital trajectories to land a vehicle on the moon. So that's quite common. That's quite often the response of experts, actually, when a, when a bold target is put there is to say why it can't be done. Whereas what JFK did was saying, I don't care, we're going to the moon. And eventually those same um, mathematicians said, okay, well, if we're going to go to the moon, we better figure out those orbital dynamics. And they did, and we went to the moon. So I think there's, this, um, you know, experts sometimes are very good at saying why we can't do things. We need to insist on the future being the one that we want so that we unlock some of the creative juices of experts and engineers around the world. One of the silver linings, possible silver linings of COP26 being postponed to, to next year is that it's not going to be caught into the vortex of the US presidential election campaign of November 2020. Talk to us about the US and the role of US politics in the climate discussion. Maybe, maybe we can put it this way. Is the US going to succeed in slowing down action for the rest of the world? Well, yes. I mean, yes is a is a is a key player in terms of the economy and its emissions, and um, and was one of the key actors in getting us to Paris. The decision of the current U.S. administration to withdraw from Paris is really, it's damaging. Right? It kind of legitimizes bad behaviour in the multilateral sense. But I think I think the jury's still out on whether that, that really has the negative effect that it sounds like on the surface. Because remember, America has two redeeming features in the sense of climate ambition. One is it's a federal system. So a lot of power is delegated. Many, many states and cities and, um, and companies and universities have all 
created an alliance actually called We Are Still In. So I think I think American politics at the federal level is not the only game in town. California is the fifth biggest economy in the world and has got one of the most ambitious plans to, to clean up its economy. So um, the jury's out. But you're right. I think you are right that it will be helpful that the COP will not be the week after a presidential election because that would kind of suck all of the media attention out of, out of what goes on in Glasgow. You mentioned China. It's an interesting case because it's a leader on solar, for example, but at the same time, it's building coal plants. Why so? And what can be done? Well, it's, it's complex, right? I mean, it's a very big, complex country. And it, it really has led in um, solar, wind, electrification. So they're leading the way in many of those industrial transitions. But it's also you know, a huge economy with a huge energy need. I think that the ultimately the, the market will take care of coal in China. If you actually look at the stats, coal-fired power stations in China are running at very low utilization levels because they're also built such a lot of renewable power. And the renewable power has zero marginal cost, basically, whereas the coal power has the... It, it's, it's complicated by the politics of employment, right? Because China has employs a lot of people mining coal and a lot of those communities don't know what they do. And we've seen that social dislocation in in the States, in Virginia, in, in my country, in the north of England and the south of Wales, where coal mining communities have been through very painful transitions. So a lot of the work that's at the heart of the energy transition now is to think about what we call just transition. Like how do we actually take manage the transition from a human point of view? So it's not just about getting the technology yeah. right. If you have a whole community where every, you know, where half the people work in coal mining, you can't just say to that community, coal is bad. Good you bad, have yes. to do something. Yeah. You can't do that. So I think that's what that's what China's grappling with. It's also grappling with the, the the risk of social unrest from dirty air in cities, which is pushing in the in the clean direction. Remember, even in Europe, Germany, one of the most sophisticated economies in the world, has said it will keep burning coal until 2038. Similar drivers, right? They mine and burn brown coal. It's the de- dirtiest form of coal. So they've had to negotiate with the communities and with the unions a time frame which most of us think is woefully long i mean i would like to see germany get off coal by 2030 but also understand it's politically very difficult again if you're a politician in 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 that community where most of the jobs are coal you can't just turn up and say you're all out of a job in three years you have to manage a process absolutely i want to go back to those early signals of change that you mentioned at the at the beginning you know because if you look at, at the media and film and social media and and uh, books there is a lot of doom and gloom about climate but then there are a lot of good news in a way that go almost unnoticed. Give us maybe a couple of examples of those early signals of change that, or those good news and, and why do you think they're important and how to think about that? Well, first thing I'd say is don't spend too much time reading all those gloomy books, right? It's really important because you re- once you've read one, you've read them all, right? If we don't tackle climate change, it's really bad, right? And so you have to go from despair to hope, right? You have to choose to act in the belief that we can avoid the worst of climate change we can't avoid everything it's already in train we're already seeing it and if when you start looking there's there's evidence all over the place that we are waking up that we are getting more ambitious the cost of renewables continue to plummet they you know solar costs come down 80 percent the last 10 years within a few years electric vehicles are going to be cheaper than i don't know why anyone would buy a combustion engine car by 2030 i think the technology costs are going down millions of young people striking is a positive sign right that's young people saying we're holding our parents generation to account and you know that that makes a difference that i've seen policymakers say this has changed the politics forever i've seen ceos being asked by their 14 year old daughter what are you doing about it daddy that's a that's a very powerful signal so i think grassroots is part of the system 
right? And they are connected. You can't be not connected to systems change. So everything that grassroots movements are doing, when people take to the street and say, we want more climate action, that's systems change, right? So never underestimate um, what, what small actions can do. It could, be a, it could be 10 million kids on the streets, or it could be um, you know, one student asking their university why they're still investing in companies that aren't taking climate change seriously. So never think that because you're only one small person or your grassroots that you don't have systems impact. Those, those noises, um, when they're heard, often have a disproportionate impact. When CEOs start realizing that young people, that university students don't like the trajectory their company's going in, so they won't buy their products or they won't work for them, that has a profound effect. So yeah, you're, you are a systems change agent if you're, in, if you're a grassroots activist. So keep it up. Nigel, let's maybe end on a question that has to do with uh, the individuals who feel overwhelmed by this. Uh, because people do wonder, you know, what can I do as an individual? Can you share maybe one or two ideas about, you know, what, what, what is the individual action plan to contribute meaningfully to fighting climate change? I mean, first of all, it's entirely normal to feel overwhelmed, but just don't get stuck being overwhelmed. Right? I think there's two levels you can think about this. One is your own footprint. And remember, we need to halve in 10 years. So just don't think about it as tomorrow. In 10 years, you can shift your electricity supply to being fully renewable. You can actually do that in a few days. If you do own a car, you can decide you're never going to buy another car or your next car will be a shared electric car or it'll be an electric car. So the combination of renewable electricity and electric car, that's taken a massive chunk. You can shift you know, anytime you upgrade any big piece of capital equipment like a boiler or a stove, you can shift from gas to electric. So you're going from fossil to now renewable power. You can look at your diet. I mean, you know, intensively farmed meat is a big part of the problem. So you can look at your diet. You don't have to go off meat completely. There's sustainably farmed meat, but a lot of, you know, a lot of red meat is bad for your health and it's bad for the health of the planet. If you fly a lot, you can use this technology more. Maybe say, I'm going to halve my flights in the next five years, right? So you have, you have individual power over all sorts of things. The other thing is you're a member of all sorts of groups. If you're, if you're a student, you're in a school or a university, Ask the question about the school university's plan to get to net zero, what it does with its investments. If you have a pension, ask your pension fund, how are they working on this? Because you never know when one, one more question is the one that finally gets to head office and has a change of policy. So keep, keep prodding away. Nigel, thank you. Thank you for being with us, sharing your knowledge and uh, your challenge, really. Good luck to you and your team. It's reassuring to know that uh, there are people like you and your team working on uh, this. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Support for TED Talks Daily comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash TED Talks. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash TED Talks. Odoo, modern management made simple.